Bibles Church and open with me again to Galatians 4. As we go ahead in our exposition of the book of Galatians, we come this morning to Galatians chapter 4 in our sermon text being verses 1 through 7. Galatians chapter 4 verses 1 through 7. And Paul writes, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman and born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son then an heir through God. Amen. Sometimes it's amazing to see how wonderful and good things can emerge from some of the worst circumstances in history. One such incident occurred during the 1994 genocide in the country of Rwanda. Uh, Guerrilla soldiers fomented attacks trying to overthrow the government and foment a coup. Some historians estimate that as many as one million people, a million people were slaughtered during the Rwandan genocide. But one whose story emerged out of that was a pastor's wife whose name was Adele. During the time in which the guerrilla soldiers were working their way through the villages and the highways and byways of Rwanda, they came to Adele and her husband's village. And when they did, she, Adele and her husband, fled into the local church and barricaded themselves in for sanctuary. And they were found there by one of the soldiers who, wielding a machete, snuffed out the life of Adele's husband hacking him to pieces. The pastor, unarmed, hacked him into pieces. And Adele suffered severe cuts and lacerations on her head and on her shoulders. And she was sent to the hospital. But rather than seethe in the bitterness of widowhood, after she recovered from her injuries, Adele decided to start serving the prisoners who were in a nearby prison camp for soldiers who had been arrested. It got very cold at night, and so she would bring blankets and clothes and food and and goods to these soldiers. She would serve them. After a while, in fact, some of these soldiers began to refer to her as Mama Adele. One day, a prisoner named Lewis came up and collapsed at Adele's feet. And through his tears, he asked her, Do you know who I am? And Adele immediately recognized who it was. Lewis was the man who had killed her husband and who had slashed her 
He begged, will you please forgive me? She picked him up and took him in her arms and said, in the name of Jesus Christ, in the name of Jesus Christ, I forgive you. She began to teach Lewis the Bible. She began to share the gospel with him and Lewis was not long after that converted to Jesus Christ. A few years went by and Lewis was finally granted clemency from the government and released from prison, but he too had lost his family in the brutality of this Rwandan civil war, and so he went to live with Adele. And do you know what Adele did? Adele adopted Lewis. She adopted Lewis to be her own son. The man who killed her husband with a machete and now she adopted him to be her own son, welcoming him into her own family as if he were her biological child. Now, on the one hand, that sounds crazy, doesn't it? On the one hand, that sounds crazy. Could any of you do that? I don't, I don't know if I could. It would be hard, no doubt. But on the other hand, listen now, it should sound gloriously familiar. That should sound... Very familiar because that is your adoption story, Christian. Yours and mine is the greatest adoption story that's ever been told. That the God against whom we were rebellious mutineers has forgiven all. Though we were under the blood guilt of His only begotten Son, He has forgiven all and adopted us to be His Son's and daughters. And that's what verses 1 through 7 really are about. God's glorious adoption. Adoption is the theme of this paragraph. Notice, first of all, adoption's preparation in verses 1 through 3. How it is that one is prepared to be adopted into the family of God. And Paul uses an analogy and then makes an application. The analogy is verses 1 through 2. I mean that the heir as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave or a household servant, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. These two verses are an analogy that has been borrowed from the Roman custom of Paul's day. In a rich man's family, we've already been introduced to this concept from chapter 3, in a rich man's family, the child or children were sort of as they were growing up in a, a limbo status, a, a, an in-between, that is, type status. Because when they grew up to adulthood, they would get everything. They would own everything that the father did. But before that time came their status of being no different than a household servant. They didn't have the children didn't have the rights to do what they wanted to do or go wherever they wanted to go. But rather, Paul points out that they were under guardians, epitropos, and managers, oikonomos. Guardians and managers. Special men who lived in the house whose job it was to train these future heirs and adults to full maturity. The first term, guardian, has to do with their education, and the second, manager, has to do with their behavior. That is, 
the guardian would teach them and the manager would guide them in how to act. But that had an expiration date on it. When they became a legal adult, when they learned what they needed to learn and knew how to act and behave how they, how they needed to, it was the, the guardians and the manager's job to make sure that these children learned and grew and knew how to behave themselves. And until that time, they didn't have their own rights because they weren't in a place where they could handle those rights and responsibilities. There was this um, flight that was going from Moscow to Hong Kong some years ago. It's a Russian airline, Aeroflot 593. And Aeroflot 593 is famous for all the wrong reasons. Of course, it had a Russian pilot and everything was going smoothly. And then all of a sudden, it seemed like out of nowhere, the plane inverted, it flipped over, and it crashed down into the ground and it killed all 75 people on board. The investigators got to looking at the plane. There was nothing at all wrong with the plane. It was running just fine. The engines were performing. It was cruising at a smooth altitude. No weather, no turbulence. So why did the plane invert and crash to the ground? Aeroflot 593. Why did it crash? Come to find out that the pilot had let his eight-year-old son take over the controls of that plane. Now, eight-year-old boys have no business at the controls of a passenger aircraft. They haven't been trained for that. They're not ready for that responsibility. They'll not have that privilege because it's dangerous when those kinds of things take place. And that's kind of the analogy, you see, that Paul is drawing. But analogous to what? Let's look at the application in verse number three. In the same way also, just as you had... A child who's going to inherit everything, but until he was fully grown and mature, he was under guardians and managers to teach and educate, to guard them in the way of how they should act, just in the same way also. When we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. What he's saying is what the manager and guardian was to the kid what he calls the elementary principles of the world are to the unsaved person. Now, one thing we have to answer when we look at verse 3 is what are the elementary principles of the world? It's a unique expression. What are elementary principles of the world? Well, the word elementary is used because it is speaking of the basic fundamental nature of the Old Testament law. They're elementary in the sense that they're like the, the kindergarten truth, the ABCs and one, two, threes of knowing the Lord. The Old Testament sacrificial system was like a theological coloring book showing them the nature of sin and God and atonement and worship showing them how the Lord required a blood sacrifice. And the Ten Commandments were the basics of loving God supremely and loving others as oneself. And while those sacrifices could preach the gospel, they couldn't save in themselves. That's why he calls them worldly. Do you see that? The elementary principles, the Old Testament system, elementary principles of the world because they were 
temporary. They were outward. They were pedantic. They were only temporary. They didn't have a lasting kind of character. And so whenever people worship the Lord in the Old Testament, they were engaging in a kind of temporary, fading, elemental nature of worship that was all designed to lead them to the knowledge of and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. They were being prepared, in other words, being made ready to believe in the one final culminating sacrifice, adoptions, preparation. But let us consider adoptions prerequisite. In verse number 4, Paul draws a distinction. But, verse number 4 says, when the fullness of time had come, there was all throughout Old Testament history a preparatory elemental time of getting ready and then just at the right moment, Paul says, when the fullness of time had come. This touches on when he came. Have you ever wondered to yourself why Jesus came when he came? Why, why wasn't it a thousand years earlier? Or a thousand years later? Why did Jesus come at exactly the right moment in history when he came? When the fullness of time had come, this language suggests to us that when Jesus came was no accident. It was all according to a definitively calculated and set sovereign time schedule. Because when you look at history, you find that you could not have picked out a more perfect time for the Redeemer and Savior to come into the world. First, it was perfect because of the rise of the Jewish synagogue. The synagogue is like the, the bridge from Old Testament temple worship to New Testament local church worship. And after the temple is destroyed, the Jews begin to construct what they call little meeting houses all over the places where they live. And these meeting places where people would gather to listen to the scriptures and to read the word and pray and sing took place in the time in which the world was getting ready for the coming of the Messiah. Second, because of the Hellenization of the world, providing what is called the the lingua franca, that is a common language. As Alexander the Great conquered the known world, taking with him the wisdom of Aristotle and the language of the Greeks, he, he united almost the entire planet under one language. So get the picture in your mind that there's little synagogues starting to dot the landscape where the scriptures are being read and heard. And there's a common language that everybody begins to speak the same language. And then on the hills, on the hills of that, you have the borders and population of the Roman Empire expanding so that this intricate system of highways and roads connected the entire known world. People reading the Old Testament, people speaking the same language, People connected under one empire and just at the right moment when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son. 
that it was no accident, but the Lord Jesus Christ came into the world intentionally. He came on a mission. He came to pursue you. I hope you understand today that you, if you are a believer, it is not because you chased after God. It is because God chased after you. You didn't come into this world seeking out the Savior. The Savior came into the world seeking you out. God sent forth His Son. You know, sometimes I think we get this conception in our head that somehow, somehow Jesus persuaded God to love me. That God hated me until Jesus died for me, and since Jesus died for me, now God loves me. But if you think that, you could not be more incorrect. You could not be more incorrect. God does not love you because Jesus died for you. Jesus died for you because God loved you. Do you see how it was the Father's plan at just the right moment to unite the world in a common language and people understanding the Old Testament and just the right moment, God sent forth His Son. Which, by the way, doesn't that tell you that the Son existed before Bethlehem? He didn't pop into being in a cow stall. He was sent by the Father into the world and he was sent to come and pursue you and me God sent forth his son one man who this verse meant so much to was named Francis Thompson he was an aspiring musician in England one time uh, he was a very eloquent man but he seemed always to make terrible and rash decisions with his life and he felt like a failure. Do you ever feel that way? Just feel like a failure? Feel like nothing you do is right. You can never figure out the right thing to do. Francis Thompson felt that way. And he did what a lot of people who feel that way often do and that is turn to drugs, to drug use. He got hooked on opium and he found himself bankrupt, impoverished, living on the streets of England like a beggar and at the lowest of the low, at the lowest of the low, he began to remember some of the gospel upbringing that he had in his childhood. The Lord, the Lord began to prick his heart. He started to feel his need of the Lord and to know a Savior. But he tried to, as many people do, whenever they hear and feel the Holy Spirit drawing and pricking their heart, he tried to squelch that and, and he tried to he tried to drown out the call of the voice of God that was calling him. But the harder he tried, the more he tried to numb himself with opium and, and all these different kinds of drugs, the, the louder the call got on Francis Thompson. Until finally in the end, he threw up the white flag of his soul surrender and gave his life to Jesus Christ. And he said, I am yours and you are mine and I surrender all to you. Francis Thompson was converted and restored. And after that, after that, he wrote a famous poem. You should read it sometime. It's called The Hound of Heaven. 
hound of heaven. You know what some of these hound dogs are trained to do? They just get on the trail of whatever they're after, a raccoon or a deer or a rabbit or something else, and they just bark and they stay on the trail and they run hot on the trail and they don't stop until they have run down their prey, the object that they're after. And Francis Thompson said, the Holy Spirit was like that to me. He's the hound of heaven. He came after me. Listen to what he wrote. I fled him. He's talking about how he's running from God. I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinthine ways of my own mind and in the midst of tears. I hid from him and under running laughter down titanic glooms of chasm fear from those strung feet that followed, followed after the Lord whose feet he heard following. But with unhurrying chase and unperturbed pace, deliberate speed, majestic instancy, they beat and a voice beat more instance than the feet, saying as it were to my soul, all things betray thee, thou who betrayest me. You know what Francis was saying? God always gets his man. He's got me bait up. All things betrayest thee, the one who betrayest me. I have betrayed the Lord, but the Lord is working providentially in my life that all those things that I choose and love more than Him are betraying me to drive me into the arms of the one I've tried so hard to run after. Do you feel that way today? Then stop running and turn to the Lord because God sent forth His Son to redeem you. He came to save you. And He came at just the right time when He came. But let me just touch on what I've already, I think, broached, and that is why He came. Notice again in verse number 4, when the fullness of time had come, when everything was just right, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman. That touches on His sinless conception. How would you have designed it if you were the Lord? Wouldn't you have had some pomp and circumstance? Like Jesus descending from heaven as he's going to come in Revelation, it says riding on a white horse with a loud trumpet. Or like my friend Jim McCarthy says, wouldn't you have had him rise up from a volcano riding on a wave of lava announcing the hot, holy fire of the heavenly God who's become a man like other emperors in the ancient world would have done? How would you have done it? Behold the wisdom of God that did it in a way we never would have imagined through the womb of a lowly virgin peasant girl who's born of a woman. He was not born of man. He was born truly man. But he was not conceived by any man. He was immaculately, spotlessly, sinlessly conceived. That's why his sacrifice was worthy. Because unlike you and me, we were born in sin. He was not shapen in iniquity. He was born sinless, holy, pure, and spotless in the womb of a virgin. 
As one of the fathers said, he was conceived in a borrowed womb. He was buried in a borrowed tomb. And from both sprung the most glorious life that the world has ever known. Second, there is his subjected status. He was not only born of woman, but he was born under the law. That is, he was born beholden to accomplish all the stipulations that the Old Testament law demanded. Third, he was born with a singular mission to redeem those who were under the law. To redeem those who were under the law. The word redeem means to purchase by paying a price. He was born to fulfill the stipulations of the law and then to pay the price necessary to rescue and purchase you and me. Incidentally, do you know how much, about how much a rough estimate is of the average, the average adoption in the United States today? Do you know about, about how much it costs to adopt a child today? I'll tell you this, it's a lot cheaper to kill a child in its mother's womb than to adopt a child. It's almost $50,000 to purchase, to adopt a child. $50,000 is a whole, whole lot of money. But it's a grain of sand on the seashore compared to the price the Lord paid to purchase and adopt you and me. It took the blood of His only begotten Son that we might receive adoption as sons. And without the redeeming grace of God's only begotten Son, you and I would never have been. That's why I call it the prerequisite of our adoption. Never could have been adopted into the family of God. Well, as we close, let me just touch on adoption's proofs from verses 6 and 7. We have a token and a truth regarding our adoption. Verse 6 shows us what the token is. Because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, it's both the Aramaic or Hebrew term and the Greek term. Ava is my father and pater is the Greek term. That means father. Whether you're, whether you're Jew or whether you're Gentile, if you have received Christ, you are a part of one family. Abba, Father, and the Holy Spirit is like the token He's like your adoption papers. He is like the proof and seal that you belong to the family of God. And that's why A.W. Pink wrote, The Holy Spirit is the author of everything in us which goes out after God. That is, those who belong to the Lord, those who possess the Holy Spirit, ought to at times feel this pinch in their soul, this yearning in their conscience to call out to God. It is the Holy Spirit that produces everything in you and me that goes after God. And if there's nothing in you or nothing in me that goes after God, it's probably because we don't have the Holy Spirit, which means you're not a child of God. Because the Spirit of God 
If you are a Christian, listen now, the Spirit of God has been deposited into you and it's His work to work within you to will and to do God's pleasure such that you should feel a stirring in your heart to call upon God, Abba, my Father. Because, because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts. You know, it's, it's fascinating. J.I. Packer said, adoption, adoption is the heart of the gospel. Now, I don't think I would have put it in those words. It's a pretty bold statement. Some might say justification. That's the heart of the gospel. Or propitiation, Jesus' worthy sacrifice. That's the heart of the gospel. Or, or resurrection, that's the heart of the gospel. But adoption is the heart of the gospel? But I think that's a salient point, at least when you look at this passage of what's at the center of it. Because what comes before? Jesus died to redeem us so that we could be adopted. And what comes after? The Holy Spirit is given to us because we've been adopted. Jesus died so that we could be adopted and the Holy Spirit has been given us because we are adopted. He is the token proof of our adoption. And the truth is contained in verse number 7. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God. You see, listen. You relate to God, and you've heard this expression probably before. Do you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? I don't care if you're a Christian, a Muslim, a Buddhist, a Hindu, an atheist, an agnostic, or something else. I don't care what classification you put yourself in. You have a relationship with the Lord today. The question is, what is is the nature of your relationship to the Lord. Are you merely relating to Him as a slave to a master or as a son to a father? It's one of the two. Because the one who gave you life, whether you trust Him or know Him or believe on Him or not, the one who gave you life, you owe that life to Him. And in that sense, you are a slave of God. He owns yours in my life. And all of our days are in His hands. Oh, but if you stand before Him merely as a slave, a part of His creation on the last day, you will stand before the Lord in judgment with no hope. But you, having believed on Jesus, you need not fear God as an offended master, but you can call on the Lord as a beloved son or daughter. You are a son and since a son, and air. So I leave with you three very brief, three very brief thoughts. Dear adopted child of God, first, you need to know in your adoption you have an upward looking assurance. An upward looking assurance. Do you know what made adopted children different under Roman law than biological children? Biological children had the inheritance given to them, adopted children had the inheritance given to them. 
You might be tempted to think that adopted children were relegated to some kind of secondary status. Sometimes we can get that in our heads maybe if we're thinking wrongly that adopted children might not be as important as biological children. Not so under Roman law. You know what the difference is under Roman law between an adopted child and a biological child? An adopted child could never be disowned. An adopted child under Roman law could never be disowned. A biological child could, but not an adopted child. No matter what they did, no matter how estranged from the family, if they were adopted, they were in the family forever, unbreakably, unchangeably so. Therefore, because you are adopted, here's what it means for you, the greatest possible security in the family of God. Your father, Christian, will never disown you. You cannot be disinherited. Because he is a faithful father. You have an upward looking assurance. You also, in your adopted status, have an inward looking challenge. An inward looking challenge. If you appreciate the doctrine of adoption, you ought be motivated to spiritual discipline and godliness. Let me use the words of the Apostle Paul. I will be a father to you, says the Lord, and you will be sons and daughters to me. Therefore, since you're my sons and you're my daughters, therefore, Paul says, having these promises, you're adopted, God is your father, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filth and defilement of flesh. You're a child of God. So why don't you act like it? Act like God is your father. And someone who is a child of God has no more business rolling around in sin and immorality than the prince of England has eating from the bottom of a garbage dumpster. God is your father. Since you are his son and since you are his daughter, let us cleanse ourselves because we bear his name and His image, and His likeness. And we're called to look like our daddy, Christian. You have an inward-looking challenge, an upward-looking assurance, and finally, the good news of adoption is we have a forward-looking hope. A forward-looking hope. Do you remember John's sweet, sweet words in 1 John 3? In verse number 2. Beloved, now are we the sons of God. Now are we the sons of God. If you don't hear anything else, write that truth on your heart. I am a son of God. Now, right now, you're not waiting on it. But you are waiting on something as a son of God. It does not yet appear what we shall be. But we know this. When he shall appear, we will be like him. We're going to be like our older brother. For we will see him as he is. Now, that's a forward-looking hope, child of God. We're not all that we ought to be right now, but one day we will be like Him. So with this upward-looking assurance, inward-looking challenge, and forward-looking hope, let us live out the glorious truth that you and I are adopted in the family of God. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Thank you, Lord, for this glorious truth. And may it inflame us, Lord, to love and worship faithful service.
Indeed, Lord, let the Spirit within us stir us to call upon your name, Abba, our Father. For it is in Christ, our older brother's name, we pray. Amen and amen.